Good morning. If we've not yet met, my name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. Would love to connect with you uh, after the service. Uh, we have just read several predictions of Christ's coming. His birth was long predicted. It was highly anticipated, very much longed for, and it was absolutely disruptive when it came about. We tend to gloss over that in the U.S. For us as a country, Christmas is not so much focused on a person as much as it's focused on what? On, on a month-long activity. And so we're not looking for the king of the universe to return to his world to restore joy to a joyless world, a world that's joyless because we've rejected his joy. If we were looking for that kind of king, we'd expect his arrival to be disruptive. But that's not what we're thinking as a society. Instead, we're thinking of Christmas as what? As, as, as an extended party. One that takes place during the darkest part of the year when the cold has just started to settle in. So it's a time of getting together with family and friends for us. It's a time of lights, decorations, of warding off the dreariness that's outside. We think of cocooning together, parties, presents, good food, all things that are good in themselves. But for us then, it turns this whole month into what? Into a time that is more sentimental than subversive. And so we forget just how disruptive Jesus' birth really is. We sanitize the story. And we write our own versions of this story. Anybody familiar with the song, The Little Drummer Boy? Okay, I don't sing well, so bear with me. Come, they told me, bum ba bum bum Okay, the newborn king to see. It's impossible not to hear that song this time of year. You hear it at stores, you hear it in the mall, you hear it in various playlists. It's been covered by a number of different artists. But do you remember how the story actually goes? A small, badly abused boy is filled with hatred. And yet, in coming to Jesus and offering the only thing he has, his gift of a song, he's accepted by God. And in return, his most treasured pet, who had been run over, is given back life. The boy himself is transformed by love. And everyone watching is moved as this boy plays this slow, haunting melody. For many of us, it's what? It, it's familiar. It's warm. It makes us go, ah, and we have that little sigh. The crowd around the boy and the story are all drawn into that moment with him. They're not only drawn to him, they're drawn to each other. Even the animals get involved. All the sheep nod in unison as he plays. Very touching, endearing moment that completely obscures the point of what Matthew wrote about. See, when the wise men came to see Jesus, it was not a wonderful, warm event. Instead, it turned people's lives upside down. It disrupted them. You heard a hint of that disruption in the eighth lesson today. When the wise men came to Herod, they asked him, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. That's what they ask Herod, and Herod's response is that he's troubled, disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. Jesus' arrival has broken into this world and it's disrupted Herod's life and it's disrupted everyone's life around him. And as you continue reading through Matthew chapter 2, that disruption just gets worse. Chapter 12, 
You learn that, I'm sorry, chapter 2, verse 12, you learn that the wise men, being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then what was fulfilled, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel, weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. It's a gut-wrenching, bloody, destabilizing story. It's a disruptive event. It started by making people anxious and uneasy. It led to a midnight flight and then to wide-scale slaughter. There is nothing cuddly about it. Nothing sentimental. Nothing that resolves well. And yet 2,000 years later, what have we done? We have sanitized it. Turned it into something very different than it is. We've romanticized it into something soft something warm. When you hear the Little Drummer Boy song playing, you don't think of all of the families weeping, mourning the murders of their sons. You don't think of Mary and Joseph racing across the middle of nowhere to an alien country, trying to stay one step ahead of a homicidal maniac. And yet we come along and we create a story that has a totally different feel, and in doing that, we create a time of year that has a totally different feel. Now, why is it that we don't remember those other parts of the stories, the ones that actually give it a lot more shape? It's because in the Western world, disruption is not an expected part of our normal, everyday life. Disruption does not fit into any of the common narratives that shape how we in the West view life. Let's consider three of those narratives real quickly. First, there's the myth of progress. C.S. Lewis unpacks this really well in his essay, The Funeral of a Great Myth. And he traces there the belief in Western civilization that society is constantly progressing, that humanity starts primitive, but then continually gets better and better and better and better, and that we have the necessary tools and abilities within ourselves as a species to affect our own progress. So if you just give us enough time, enough resources, enough expertise, enough technique, we will fix what's broken about us. Now, what place, then, do disruptions have in that belief? They don't. They don't fit. They're anomalies. They're unwelcome. They are things to be overcome, and once you overcome them, they are things that should not return because, as the myth says, we can and will pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. That's one Western belief that factors out disruption. Second belief, we believe in the power of money. We believe that wealth both insulates you from danger 
and that it opens the door to an enjoyable life, that it will protect you from bad things happening, that it will protect you from disruption while it lets you enjoy good things. We believe that money really does buy happiness, that it can buy happiness, that it must buy happiness, and since we have lots of money, especially in the Philadelphia suburbs, we expect to have lots of happiness, not lots of things that disrupt our happiness. Third belief, persistent belief. Not only are we progressing, not only are we able to enjoy life, we must enjoy life. We should enjoy life. That's our right. We are fully capable of realizing a utopia here on earth now. And that if we are not enjoying our lives as much as we possibly can, it's somebody's fault, and they need to change. George Packer, he's a staff writer for The Atlantic, He's written a book trying to understand the massive upheaval of 2020. He writes about, quote, how the year exposed the nation's underlying conditions, discredited elites, weakened institutions, blatant inequalities, unquote. And he traces the causes of the disruption, the upheaval, back to the 1970s, and he talks about four different social movements that grew out of responses to each other over the next five decades. Four very different social movements that serve four very different constituents that rely on four very different things to obtain the good life, and yet there's a common theme underlying all four of them, and that is that the good life should be theirs and that it should be accessible to them now. Each movement believes that it really is possible to build a utopia on this earth if only the, the dystopian elements would get out of the way. Now, I'm sure there are more beliefs than these three that affect how we think about disruption in our lives, but what are these three? They're what Timothy Keller refers to as counterfeit gods, cultural idols, ideas and belief, beliefs out in our largest society that promise us the life we want if we'll just commit ourselves to pursuing them. Things that promise to protect us, things that promise to give us a good life, or in our language that we've been using this month, things that promise to give us joy, not disruption. They promise them here on earth. And these ways of thinking are then so deeply entrenched in the American psyche that a love for God and a longing for his ways does not drive everything that we are and everything that we do here. I'm not simply talking about people out there. I'm talking about people in here, talking about Christians, brothers and sisters, you and me. Christians who buy into these desires just as much as anyone else. Which means what? It means that when God does show up in our lives, he can't help but disrupt us. Because he's moving in a different direction than many of our wants and our desires move. So why then are we not ready for it when he does? Why don't we see it? Why don't we embrace it with joy when he does? Why don't we get really excited because now that he's here, now we're going to have real joy instead of the substitute joys that we were trying to have? Why does the little drummer boy mythology override our understanding of what happened when the king was born? It's because the world you live in works overtime to influence you to get you to buy into its beliefs, to get you to see reality a certain way, a way other than God does, to subtly change how you think about God 
and how you think about the life then that he has called you to live. And so Christmas comes around and your world does not focus you on your need of a disrupting rescuer. It doesn't teach you to feel your need of him breaking into your life. It doesn't teach you to celebrate him when he does. Instead, it focuses you on having as good a time as you possibly can right here, right now. And in that respect, it influences you. It influences your faith. And that influence of the world on you is always true, or that attempted influence is always true. We say this a lot here at Renewal Mainline. If you are trying to follow Christ, you just have to expect that the world is working overtime to influence you, to enculturate you, to influence how you think about and how you live out your faith. And so part of your calling as a citizen of heaven is to constantly work to reclaim your faith, to do the hard work of asking, where have I allowed elements of my culture to seep into my faith again? Elements that inform how I think about who God is. Elements that inform how I think about what he calls me to. Elements that don't simply inform my thought patterns. That elements that, that work their way into my vocabulary so that I use even vocabulary that doesn't reflect how God thinks. How do I learn to see again what God has for me to see? How are we going to do that this morning? We have to let go of our preconceptions of what this time of year is all about. And we have to go back to Scripture. And we have to see not only what God does, but why he does it. And third, why we should trust him when he does it. What God does, why he does it, and why we should trust him when he does it. I'm going to blur a number of those together, but those are the three in, that I'm trying to address. Let's think about the wise men for a minute. They told Herod, verse 2, we saw his star when it rose. Now, do the math, and you realize that it took them a long time to get to, to, to Jerusalem. In verse 16, Herod figured out from the time that they told him that he needed to kill all of the boys who were two years old and younger in order to make sure that he killed this new king, to, the challenger to his throne. That means the wise men showed up at least two years after they saw the star. Two years. What, what have they been doing all that time? They saw a star that was really different, but it's not immediately clear they understood what that was about. If you saw something like that, what would you do? You'd have to do some research. You'd have to do some study. Maybe talk with some colleagues. After they were sure of what they saw, they had to prepare for this trip. Had to make sure that they had everything that they needed for traveling in hostile conditions. So they spent time, they spent money getting ready, and then they set off on this long, slow journey, plotting day after day. Not like you and me throwing a bunch of stuff in an overnight bag and hopping on the first flight out of town. They put their lives on hold for at least two years. Maybe three, four by the time they got back. Their plans and their dreams were what? They were disrupted. Their projects, the things that they had been working on, were interrupted, maybe never to be finished. It's like that never-ending to-do list that you have working around your house. You start out with some great ideas, and then you keep on adding to those ideas, and at some point you, you run out of time and energy. The bottom of the list never gets finished before you have to sell the house and move on. 
In my office at home, I have a drawer with manila folders in it. And when I have an idea for, uh, for a book, I scribble down the idea and put it in one of the folders. I'm aware that when I open that drawer that I will probably not write most of those books before I die. Something always comes up, something always interrupts. It's like all the rest of life, isn't it? How about that list of places that you always wanted to visit? That list of things that you always wanted to do. Have you gotten to the point in your life where you're starting to cross things off of that list yet? Live long enough, and you will. Life is short. God took two, three, four years out of these guys' lives when he decided to show up on this planet. God does not create romantic fairy tales that it fit into the way that you plan for your life to go. His plans tend to shake up our plans. His plans tend to alter our lives. And here's the glory of the wise men. They bought into what he was doing. They came to worship. They came to wrap their lives around him because they thought that he was worth giving everything else up for. Just for what? Just for the chance to be in his presence just for the chance to worship him. Herod had a totally different response. Herod was troubled, verse 3, when God broke into his life, disturbed. He had worked so hard to be king of Judea. Herod really wasn't a Jew. He came from the Edomites. They lived in the southern portion of Judea. The Roman Senate made him king anyway, which made his reign very unpopular. So when he hears from the wise men that a king of the Jews has been born, Herod is disturbed. He's hearing a challenge to his throne by someone who can claim to be a descendant of David. Herod thought he had everything wrapped up to be king, even had the Roman Senate's approval, and all it took was a small child's birth to show how flimsy his plans really were. It's how little it took to derail them, just one birth. Jesus' arrival disrupted his belief in his own power. And it also disrupted all Jerusalem. Herod was a cruel man. He ruled through violence. Just to give you a sense of him as a person, he left orders twice that if he was killed while away working out some political business, that his wife, Mariamne, should be murdered on his death so that she would only ever be his. He was afraid, I think rightly, that very few people would mourn him at his death. So he ordered, didn't get carried out, but he ordered that when he died, one member of every family in the nation should be killed to make sure that there was general mourning and grieving on that day. Cruel, violent, insecure, a really, really bad combination. It makes sense that when Herod was disturbed, Everyone around, all Jerusalem, was disturbed with him. Who knew what this guy was going to do? Who was going to get hurt in the process? So when he chose to attack innocent children to pursue his own goals, that made perfect sense, given who Herod was. God's arrival disrupted Herod's life, and Herod struck back. He had no interest in worshiping this one. He wanted to be worshiped to be the center around which everybody else wrapped their lives. Wise men, Herod, Herod's victims, Jerusalem, 
There's more. Those are kind of on the outside of the circle. There's an inner ring as well. Inner ring whose lives got turned upside down. Joseph got woken up by an angel in a dream, verse 13. Angels do not seem to have brought a lot of good news to Joseph. First one told him that he was going to marry the pregnant girl he was dating. This one tells him to run for his life. And I want you to put yourself in his place when he went to bed that night. He had no warning of what was about to come. What did he do at the end of the day? Maybe tidy up the workshop? Help out around the house? Eat dinner? Talk with Mary? Maybe played with Jesus a little bit? Thought through what he needed to do for the next day? Went to sleep and then, bam, here's this angel telling him, get up! You think, what? Get up, take the child and mother, and escape to Egypt. Now there's this midnight scramble. Stuff a few clothes into a bag. Grab whatever money they had. Is there any food that we can take? Throw your tool bag over your shoulder and race out the door to a completely foreign place that he's never been to before. Honey, did you bring the map? You think that's what he was planning for his life to be like, right? When I grow up, I want to settle down to a life on the run as a fugitive. I want to be responsible for single-handedly keeping a wife and child safe from my own nation's military. I want to be the stepfather to someone that everyone else wants to kill. That is not what he planned for his life. All of his business contacts, gone. All the job referrals, gone. He's going to have to start all over again. All of his friends, gone. Family, gone. Joseph is very much on his own, and it really has nothing to do with him. Do you hear how strange his life turned out? God did not ask him if this is what he wanted. God decided to enter this world, and his decision has turned Joseph's life upside down. So much upside down, it's barely recognizably Joseph's life anymore. Do you know what that's like? To have God invade your life for the sake of someone else? I was frustrated with Sally one day. <laughs> I can't even remember what it was about which is pretty normal for those of you who have been frustrated. You get upset about things that really aren't that big a deal. I was frustrated, upset, and I have no idea why. I'm sure it had something to do with me not getting to have the world the way that I wanted it. So I was there in my living room doing the spiritual thing. I'm praying, complaining to God about his daughter, my wife, who wasn't making my life nice. And this is one of those times where God was crystal clear, not in an audible voice or anything, but this idea suddenly came inside my head that had absolutely nothing to do with my own thought processes. This idea that suggested, maybe it's not about you. Maybe your marriage has nothing to do with you. Maybe you didn't get married for your sake. Maybe it's about what she needs from you. And in that moment, that is not what I want to hear. Seriously, how can my marriage not have anything to do with me? I mean, it's my marriage, therefore, by definition, it's about me. Even if God only meant that maybe in this moment my marriage has nothing to do with me, even that can't be true, right? It's my marriage. 
Or is it? Maybe God has bigger plans for Sally and me than to let us carry on unimpeded, doing our own thing as we search for joy apart from what he has planned. Maybe the disruptions I experience are part of what God is doing. Maybe Joseph's life had nothing to do with Joseph. The very little that we know about him is that his life was constantly getting upended, disrupted by God, just like yours, just like mine, just like Mary's. All her girlfriends left behind. All the women that she was connecting with, sharing cute stories with. Oh, did I tell you about what Jesus did today? All the playdate pals. The people that she was thinking about homeschooling with, they're all left behind. Along with her favorite cookware. Home furnishings. That table that Joseph finally got round to building for them, just standing there now, abandoned in the middle of the room. Did they even have time to give things away to friends? It's the middle of the night. Did they just have to leave that stuff for someone else to steal? There's no social safety net in the ancient world apart from family. There's no guarantee that her husband will find work. They're going to stand out as foreigners, refugees. This is not going to be easy. And Jesus had brothers. He's two years now, two years old, two years since he was born. Was Mary pregnant on this trip too? Nobody in this chapter kept going down the same road they were on. Jesus interrupted and disrupted each person's life that he came into contact with, and you have to believe that he will do the same for you. He breaks into our comfortable lives and he turns them upside down. He introduces twists and turns that you cannot begin to anticipate. You can't see the future when he's involved. You can't tell yourself, oh, okay, this little bump, it's, it's okay. In another couple of years, everything will settle out and we'll be able to breathe easy again. Then I can recreate heaven on earth. It's just a momentary blip. You can't think like that. Instead, when God enters your world, he shows how weak and untrustworthy all the other things are that you thought you could count on think, but why? <laughs> this seems so unnecessary. This is how he treats the ones that he loves? Yes. Because far too often we set our hearts on things that are at odds with him and his purposes. See, Jesus did not come to this earth so that the status quo of this world would continue, which means that he didn't enter into your world so that your status quo would continue either. He entered because the status quo was the problem. All those other things that draw us, the idols of our culture, the will to power, the absorption in our own projects and interests, the settled, comfortable lifestyle, those things wage war against us to keep us from him. So if he loves you, he will involve himself in your life, and he will disrupt it so that you no longer trust that those things will lead you to joy 
so that you have a chance of trusting him to lead you to joy instead. It means you need to expect him to interrupt your world probably a lot more often than you'd really like. But we need to think just a little bit more here because if you're like me, you need a reason to trust him when he breaks in. So think with me. Whose life in Matthew chapter 2 was the most disrupted? It's not the wise men. It's not Herod. It's not Joseph. It's not even Mary. The most disrupted person is Jesus. No one's life was more affected than his. No one's life got harder than his. No one's life was more interrupted or, mis or more disrupted. Think about it this way. In heaven, everything was exactly the way that Jesus wanted it. Everything worked the way that it was supposed to. He was completely adored by his Father and adoring in return. Spirit flowed freely between them. There was perfect harmony, perfect agreement, perfect peace, perfect joy. No relationship could be better. Nothing ever created an awkward moment. No ripple of anger, no irritation. Did you ever get a roommate? Get married? How long did it take for you to get over the honeymoon phase? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit haven't gotten to that point. And yet, despite all that relational goodness, Jesus chose to come to an earth where every relationship struggles. Move out from the Trinity. Jesus was surrounded by creatures who appreciated him. They liked him. Spirits he talked with. Beings who put his plans into motion. What he wanted made complete sense to everyone around him, and so they hurried to turn his ideas into reality. Think about his immensity. How he existed outside of time and space. How time and space fit inside of him without actually being connected to him. Consider his glory. It's written in every sunset. You feel it in every breeze. You can smell it in every orange peel. Think about all of that and how it changed. Somehow he put his attributes aside. Somehow he took his infinity and folded it so that it was smaller. How do you do that? By definition, half of infinity is still infinite. He should not have been able to do what he did, but somehow he folded himself until he stuffed himself into a body. No longer could he do what he wanted to do. No longer was he clearly understood. No longer adored. No longer all-powerful. As a baby, couldn't even move on the planet that his spirit had hovered over. Jesus pursued his own paralysis. He couldn't communicate. The one who invented language who made everything by the power of his word, had to make his needs and wants known through crying, gesturing. He had to work to learn a language. <laughs> but as soon as you say that, you think, wait, now he had needs and wants. 
This one who made everything no longer had everything. When he didn't eat, he grew weak. When he moved fast, worked hard, he ran out of breath. He got sick. He would later tell people that he had no place to call home, lay his head. His life was not even close to what it had been. He was not appreciated, regularly attacked. Herod's attempt on his life, that was just the start of a life of struggle and conflict. Isaiah tells us that he was despised and rejected. His brothers didn't understand him. They thought he was crazy. The leaders of the people, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the experts in the law, they would all take their shots at him. The crowds, he taught, he healed, he fed. They ended up calling out to crucify him. His own friends ran away, abandoned him, so he wouldn't get treated the same way. Why? Why did he leave heaven, the place that all of us want to create here on earth? Why did he leave there so that he could endure the misery that we face every day, the misery that we are trying to escape? Matthew tells you, verses 15 and 17, it was to fulfill scripture. He disrupted his own life. He went through everything that he did so that you would have reasons to trust what God said about him. Reasons to know that this one disruptive child, Jesus, really is the Messiah. Reasons to believe that everything prophesied about him hundreds of years earlier was coming true in this one. And Jesus thought that you, having confidence in his words about him, he thought that was important enough to disrupt his own life. Because if the smaller prophecies were fulfilled, it would give you a reason to believe that the larger ones would be too. That through him, God really would save his people from their sins. That through him, God would save his people from their longings to create paradise apart from God. Would save us from our longings to find joy apart from him. Jesus came so that through him, God would reconnect you to himself. This time of year, a lot of us think about trees. Jesus also came to earth thinking about a tree. His tree, though, didn't have pretty decorations on it, didn't have nicely wrapped presents underneath. He came planning for an ugly tree, a cross an ancient torture device, a tree that would disrupt his life more than you and I will ever understand. A tree that would rip apart his relationship with God so that you and I could start one instead. And God thought that goal was important enough to disrupt his own life, permanently becoming human, living a really hard, difficult life that ended in agony. Do you catch the contrast here with Herod? Herod is willing to kill your son in order to keep his throne. God sacrificed his son so that one day you can share his throne with him. When Jesus enters your world and disrupts it, he doesn't turn it upside down anywhere near as much as he turns his own upside down. This God will break into your world. He will shake it up. You can count on that. It's not going to be comfortable living here. Don't expect it to be. Don't believe the sentimentality of the season.
But when your life is hard, remember, it never even comes close to what Jesus put himself through for you. Our God never asks more from his people than he's willing to give for his people. And he never asks you to walk that road alone. When Joseph and Mary fled to Egypt, God literally went with them. Jesus went with them. And that gives you and me a taste of what life is like now as Jesus lives inside of us. He disrupts your life so that he can be with you permanently. And that means that there is no safer, wiser place to be on earth than with him, regardless of how interrupted that makes you feel. Lord God, bring the reality of you to bear in our lives. Lord, the decorations and the tinsel and all of the fun of this season is so palpable. We can feel it, we can touch it, we can see it. Lord, give us more than that. Give us that sense of you in our hearts, stirring us, moving us, touching us, being with us. And Lord, as you do that, give us a willingness to say yes to you, regardless of what yes means. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters, that when you interrupt our lives today, that our first response would not be irritation. Our first response would be, Lord God, where are you now? so that we can keep step with you. In Jesus' name, amen.